Good morning. So we are in Acts chapter 2, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, we're, I'm, well, I'm going to start us in about verse 22, after Peter had begun his sermon and quoted from the book of Joel, from the prophet, um, but um, we're certainly open to review that if uh, anyone has any comments or anything like that. Um, for now, let's just go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Uh, Clay, would you mind giving us a word of prayer? Our kind and loving Father, we're so very thankful for this first day of the week and the opportunity we have to come together and study a portion of your word, look into it more deeply, consider it for our own lives, how to apply it to ourselves. We're thankful for this day because we can remember Jesus, his sacrifice for us on the cross, and we Offer worship and praise to you. Pray, Father, you'll be with Travis as he leads us through this study. Pray, Father, that as students we would participate to the best of our ability. We, we pray, Father, you be with all the Bible class teachers and students. And pray that we would all come out of this uh, enriched and, and encouraged and motivated to do better in our service to you. And help us to keep in mind that... As we gain more knowledge and wisdom into your word, that provides us with more understanding, not only in how to apply the scriptures to our own lives and walk closer to you, but also it prepares us for the sharing of your word with the lost of this generation. We pray that we would be bold in our evangelism and that we would do what we can to let our light shine Thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy. This is our humble prayer in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, so, this is, of course, Acts 2. We are exploring the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming down upon the apostles uh, with, in the image of tongues of fire. And they are, of course, speaking in tongues. And then the great roaring sound, of course, ends up attracting people to the house that they're staying at. And they speak and in different tongues, as we've said. And then Peter actually stands up to speak uh, what appears to be prompted by, in verse 13, when others say, mocking them and saying they are full of sweet wine. That seems to kind of prompt him to take his stand and, with the eleven and begin to serve it. And of course we know that early on, as was discussed last week, uh, that he spoke uh, from the prophet Joel. And actually, let's just go ahead and read that part just to get the full context going here. And then if anyone does have any additional comments about that section... We can discuss it. But in Acts 2, verse 17, he quotes from the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days 
pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I think it's good to just recap that briefly because of the imagery involved. Um, And a reminder that Peter is talking about the events that are happening right before everyone's eyes. Now the Holy Spirit has come on people. Um, Different spiritual gifts are about to be imparted. And we are going to have the Holy Spirit um, just comforting the people, comforting the early church, and providing a means of revelation for them. And in verse 20, when it says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, you know, a, a lot of people really take that to mean that that's a, about the end of the world. Uh, but in the context, There's no reason to separate that from what we have just read. That this is about the time that they are in right now. That the last days being spoken of here are the beginning of the kingdom of God, which is, of course, the church. And then uh, in verse 22, Peter continues, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Now, I don't recall if we talked about that section at all last week, but I think there's some important things to unpack. Uh, Does anyone have any comments just about what we've read, including this most recent verse? Okay. So, obviously he's making a, a segue from the prophet Joel to what is happening right now and then correlating it to Jesus and what happened. But what I find most interesting, I think, is um, how often he points out that they are responsible for Jesus' death. Uh, he, he says it multiple times. You nailed him to a cross, and so on. And he will bring it up again later. But, you know, I think we would look at that way of speaking to people as very confrontational. And not very helpful, and yet that's the example we have before us of evangelism, like the very first moment of evangelism on the day of Pentecost. And that's the example we have. And I want to point out in verse 22, when he talks about Jesus and the miracles and signs, he specifically says that they were performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. These are people who lived in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem right now. Jesus was just walking the earth for 40 days post-resurrection. And he drew such crowds before his death even 
that there's, you couldn't say there's anyone in Jerusalem who didn't at least know of him. And then, of course, when he's crucified, he's crucified in such a way that people would have been able to walk by and see it happening. It wouldn't have been in the middle of nowhere, though it's outside the city gates. It would have been easy for people to see and have access to because it's a public execution. And then he's resurrected, and he's walking around with everybody. He's having meals. He's showing off, you know, his the holes in his hands and his feet. There are things that couldn't be denied. And so Peter is talking to people and really reminding them what has happened, what they have done to Jesus. And they can't deny any of it. And I think that's an important thing. This, is, um, this isn't some subjective opinion of Peter's. What he's saying is absolutely true. These people were part of the crowd that would have said, crucify him, crucify him. Because as it says earlier in this chapter, the people who were around the house were, uh, that came to see them, they were devout men of Jerusalem. In verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming down, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So these were devout men from every nation, and they were living in Jerusalem. And I guess you couldn't say for sure if every single one of them was a Jew, but it's made clear by the context that at the very least the majority of them were. And now, before we go on further, does anyone have any comments about that aspect of it? Because I find it interesting how immediately confrontational Peter is, in a way. Okay. Well, then let's keep going. Yes. I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is is, is the boldness that Peter has mm-hmm. when, you know, not too many weeks earlier he had denied Christ. Right. And, and, so, and we've talked about this before, uh, and it's just a good reminder of how how quickly one can set their mind to something and, and turn things around if they so desire to. And I think that's a good lesson for us, but but also a good lesson for us is is the boldness that you say what needs to be said, uh, depending on the audience that you have and where they are. And and so I, I, those are just a couple good reminders for us. Yeah, and I mean, how many times, uh, like as you said, say the things that need to be said for the audience that is in front of you, and like how many times have we in our own personal lives? been ashamed or embarrassed to speak as boldly as we could have. Um, You know, when I'm talking to people who um, profess to be Christians, but then they do certain things that aren't, um, I'll make it clear that, oh, I don't agree with that, but do I go far enough and then try to explain to them, well, this is why that's not okay. This is, you have all the tools, you've read the Bible, Let's look at all the things that you are neglecting. Um, I think that's important, and it's uh, 
difficult sometimes, but it's necessary. And uh, Peter's boldness is a good example here because he's standing up in front of a crowd that just, what, seven weeks before or so um, was shouting to crucify Jesus. Uh, yes, sir. You can understand, too, that you know, before uh, Peter didn't have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he came to understand. And so with that understanding, I think he was able to be bold. You know, and I think that applies to us today, too. If, if, we, don't, if we never study the scriptures and we never study the words that through the Holy Spirit inspired writers wrote, we will never have the understanding. And we will never be bold. And, and I think that's when we're looking for, for strength and we're looking to for courage to you know, stand up, you know, proclaim and stand up in, uh, in front of our peers, maybe, you know what I mean, and act in voice, you know, that's going to come through understanding. And that understanding is, is only going to come one way, and that's the study of God's word. So I I just think we need to use Peter as a as a guidance. You know, yes, that boldness was there, but that boldness came from because he, he finally understood the whole picture. It just wasn't given to him to understand prior to the You know, that's a good point. And knowledge, but not the understanding. Yeah. So you're right because he was the Holy Spirit had come upon him now, so he would have had clearer understanding of what was taking place, what had taken place before. That's a good point, because it does remind us the importance of reading the Bible, of studying the Scripture and meditating upon it. Um, like you said, with knowledge, we can be more bold. Yes, sir? Well, when you look at how weak he was before, you know what I mean? And we consider ourselves sometimes to be very weak. And so, you know, how, how do we get that courage mm-hmm. when we're weak? Yeah, that's true. Um, and I don't know if it's an exact... Uh, Correlation, but it makes me think of Paul saying that he boasts nothing of himself, but he boasts in Christ. Um, because we are all weak, but the Holy Spirit makes us stronger. It can make us bold if we listen to anything he has to say. So that's a good point. Thank you very much. Mr. Bro. Well, tying in your point and Joe's point together about how you said, you know, those folks who profess to be Christians, but their actions are showing otherwise. And Joe's point about knowing the scriptures. I found your compassion towards those folks. Okay, I've never read that. Like my response would be, okay, I've never read that scripture. Can you show me the scripture where that's part of Where you see that in the scripture? And you're doing it without being confrontational. You're asking a legitimate question to find out. And then at that point, you either can or can't you know, try to support what they're saying. That opens the door. It opens the door for you to share scripture that you know that would probably teach differently than what their understanding is what they think it needs to be a Christian. And so it's a delivery on how you do this based on like what Joe was saying. The knowledge you have with the scriptures teach accurately can help somebody understand the scriptures accurately versus just based on feelings, emotions, or what grandpa said, or whatever you look like this. Because we're responsible for knowing the scripture and have to apply it to our lives. And so that's one of the ways I found out of you. I didn't do that at first. A lot of times you'd be confrontational and that doesn't work. Yeah. You know, finger pointing and all that kind of stuff. But when you ask the question, okay, really, you know, show me in the scripture, where did you find that guy's work? Help me understand. And see where, either see where they go with it to 
see if it's an erroneous understanding, one you just don't know, and then you can help the person if they're honest and genuine, which they're out there, those folks are out there. To bring them to the true understanding, which we have so many examples in Scripture that show folks doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, helping others understand Scripture where either they had no idea or they had it wrong. Right. They had the wrong context, you know, like you're saying too. So that's a trying to tie your two points together, and right? that's just some some method I've learned over the years to kind of all in their court, so mm-hmm. to say, to prove what they're saying. You know, to say, why are you taking that stand? Why is that your foundation? Help me understand why that is. Right. And uh, thank you. That's a good point, too. Um, I do find it's, I agree with you. I do find it's more, at least uh, around some people that you're talking to, obviously, it depends on the audience, but yeah, asking them where they're getting their information is sometimes enough to get them thinking about it. You're absolutely right. Because a lot of times, if I talk to someone and I ask them, well, where they get that teaching, they'll say, oh, well, you know, Martin Luther once wrote, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, okay, but I'm sure not everything Martin Luther wrote was wrong, but let's stick to the Bible, where in the Bible? And that's kind of where things start to fall apart. Um, So the other thing I do want to bring out here is that when Peter's talking about Jesus and how he was raised up, he says... But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And that's just another way, of course, of talking about his divine nature and how you can't really, I mean, impossible to be held by his power. He, if he's both fully God and fully man, you can't actually destroy him. You know, through him, a creation came to be. So it's another way of speaking to his divinity, which... Um, I think is important. And then, of course, he, Peter goes on to talk about what David said about Jesus. And he rolls into Psalm uh, 16. So he speaks from that. He specifically quotes the verses 8 through 11, is what my Bible footnote said. Um, but it is a short enough Psalm that we can probably read the whole thing, but let's just stick with the Acts context right now. So, verse 25, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, I think he's bringing up this psalm passage just to further cement uh, to the crowd that the Scripture was always talking about Jesus. He brought up Joel to talk about the moment they're in right now, the Holy Spirit coming upon the believers, and now, of course, we have David being referenced as having talked about Jesus. So let's turn really quick to Psalm 16, because that was only a portion of it that was quoted.
And I just kind of want to take uh, you all to take note of the potential variances here um, for anything that was uh, paraphrased. And of course, this would have been written in Greek here, but obviously in the Book of Psalms it was uh, in Hebrew. So there are some variants of language, but. Um, I just find it fascinating. So Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Nor will I take their name names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now, the thing I find fascinating about that psalm is, you know, it's written by David. And it starts out really being about David and his, um, how he feels about God and how he wants God to preserve him. And just how he's saying, you are my Lord and I have no good beside you and so on. And then it seems almost all of a sudden in verse 8 that it shifts and then it begins to talk about in verse 10 nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's, it's interesting to me because, and, and we're going to get to this in a minute, when um, Peter explains a little bit more about David and his relation to Christ. But I think this is something that Peter is really able to fully understand because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's able to see Christ now in the Old Testament. And it's an example for others to realize we can find him in other places. These things that we might have looked over in passing, thinking it was only talking about David, or we might have been just confused by it. Now these things are suddenly illuminated. And we can see the overall plan in the scriptures, the plan of salvation, that... Christ was not hidden. He was, he was always there. Um, I don't know. I just find that interesting. So I wanted to read the whole psalm. Um, because as in most of David's psalms, he's talking about, you know, I, I'm in trouble. Help me. Save me from my enemies. You know, talking about how good God is and how to praise him. And we know, of course, that David was a man after God's own heart. But then it's like the Holy Spirit guided him to kind of seep in these little allusions to Christ. So that when Christ finally came and was resurrected, and now everyone finds themselves in the last days, 
everything can just sort of click. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about that, but that's kind of the way I take it, and uh, I just kind of find it encouraging uh, the more I look at it. Anyway, um, let's continue on to see what Peter says. He doesn't specifically... Yeah, yeah, he does. He um, talks about what he just quoted. In verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, Brethren... I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, why do you think he says that? What do you think the significance there of saying, oh, by the way, he's dead and here's his tomb? Because they would have, it says his tomb is with us to this day. Um, They all would have known where it was. They were Jews. This would have been a significant place for them. And, you know, it's not like today where, you know, Jerusalem had been, you know, essentially destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. A lot of uh, pieces have been lost. And now there are different traditions of like, oh, this is David's tomb. This is Zechariah's tomb. But do they really know? I'm not sure. But for them, they have something to point to. David's tomb is with us to this day. Does anyone have any thoughts about why he's pointing out that David died? Bill? As you kind of pointed out, I'm not hearing that song. They may have known that song, but maybe they had just attributed to David talking about David. Yeah. That's sort of being prophetic, and so I think it's just an extra piece of confirmation. Mm -hmm. You know this can't be about David because he is dead. Right. Thank you. Uh, I think that's exactly right. Chris? Yeah, it's also setting up the contrast of Jesus who is resurrected. Mm-hmm. So, so, because they put a lot of trust in David as a king, he's identified here as a patriarch and as a prophet, as a, but Jesus is greater than him. Yeah. And all the trust, as we see in the New Testament, in Moses, Abraham, and David, they all had a role, mm-hmm. but Christ was superior to all of them. So you have David buried and dead in tomb, contrasted with Jesus who rose from the tomb. Right. And, and you know, that's, that's true too. So, like, as Bill said, um, pointing out that David is dead, so obviously he did undergo decay, and now this must be talking about Christ, you know, the Holy One. And then, as you said, um, that all that all really clicks and makes sense. That the contrast there, that these these Jews would have been very trusting of David and his story and his lineage, but then they're inclined to deny Christ. So, yeah, that's a good point, too. That's, um, they're obviously trying to make that comparison there for a very good reason. So uh, let's continue on with verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, uh, this being David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And of course, he's talking about him and the apostles. They are all witnesses. Um, but many of the people in the crowd may have been witnesses too, in effect. We just don't know for sure exactly what they experienced. But again, this is Jerusalem they're in right now. And there would have been a very big fervor about what had been going on the last month. 
And now the, verse 31, when it says, He, being David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Of course, since he knew that the Christ would end up um, being seated on his throne, one of his descendants, so we know that Jesus, of course, was of the line of David, but that he looked ahead, so he... That's an interesting thing to me, too, because obviously David was a man, and he understood how he was sinful at times, and he understood that, you know, someone would come forth that wasn't that way. But he didn't know when, and he didn't know exactly what nature that would be, perhaps. Um, I'm not an expert on that, so maybe he did. I don't know. But it... This idea of looking forward and just desiring to see that. Um, I should have wrote that verse down. There's another verse somewhere where it says the, the prophets were desiring to see the times that we are in now. And they can only kind of glimpse it almost. And I, I think that's almost what it's referring to. And it's very powerful to me that the idea of trusting in God and just looking ahead and speaking of the resurrection as inspired by the Holy Spirit... And just longing to see those things. And being unable to at the time. In verse 33, Peter continues, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now again, Peter's reminding them, you crucified him. And he quotes another psalm, Psalm 110. Um, We don't have to read that psalm. I think it's 11 verses or so, but... Just the first verse there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which I think without the overall context of Christ, you know, just reading it as someone that maybe read it over David's shoulder, you know, a long time ago, who heard the psalm performed. You know, you might not have thought too much about it other than it's praising God. Um, But then there's this image, the Lord... The Lord said to my Lord. So in a sense, two lords. So we have God the Father and, of course, Jesus the Son of God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what enemies would those have been? Well, death would have been an enemy that Jesus conquered. That he defeated death. Um, But also... The people who had him crucified would have been enemies because, you know, they were being antagonistic, obviously. And now what's going to happen to all of them eventually? They're going to either repent and follow Christ or in 70 AD, Jerusalem's going to get sacked and they're all going to die. You know, there's this period that they're in right now is going to see fulfillment of these points. Uh, does anyone have any comments on this uh, passage that we just went over? Okay, Chris. Yeah, I think uh, 
the verse you think of, which I was thinking of too, was Hebrews chapter 11, mm -hmm. and verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them before off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed them, they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And then later on, in verse 33, David specifically is mentioned. So, as you point out, it's interesting because we usually think of David as a king. We remember the story of him as a boy and mm -hmm. uh, how he became uh, to that position. But thinking of him as a prophet and thinking of him as seeing someone afar off these promises and trusting in God and wanting to receive them, but Christ did not come yet. Which again points to the superiority that Christ is going to have, which is what you pointed out, mm -hmm. which is what Hebrews is all about. And you think of the 11th chapter with all those heroes of faith that are mentioned. It sort of ties together everything that you're talking about here. All the different prophets and times and information is being put together. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, I, I like the phrasing that you mentioned where we think of him as a king. We don't always think of him as a prophet. And I don't know, I think it's just we're so single-minded sometimes. It's like, oh, wait, he wasn't a prophet. He was a king. And they can be both things. So, um, yeah, that's a good reminder. Clay, did I see your hand? Yeah, I was just thinking, it kind of goes back to Joe's comment earlier about the Holy Spirit and how they had, you know, Peter had knowledge, he had the understanding. And, and, and really, uh, when we have that understanding, when we have that knowledge, it allows us to do exactly what Peter's doing here. And that doesn't mean that everyone in here has to get up and give a sermon. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of this is, Here's what a passage says, and here's what it means. And, and, and we can all have the ability to do that when we invest our time in studying and meditating upon the scriptures. Right. And then in turn, we can use that information not only to guide ourselves and how we need to live, but in, like in this instance, to guide other people. You know, what was the thing that Rod always um, said, and I don't know if he came up with it, but he would say, you just give the verse and you give the sense. And we can overcomplicate evangelism a lot. But we don't need a lot of different, I don't know, I mean, not that it hurts sometimes, but we don't need elaborate stories and idioms and things. We just, here's what the Bible says. Um, yes, sir. That's a, all your points are good. So, um, about, you know, the conviction that will just come out. I think that's really great. 
um, when we have that knowledge. And you brought up politicians, so it, it's kind of funny because you can tell the difference between a genuine conviction and the sort of forced conviction. Because some people, like mostly politicians it seems, try to speak like they know exactly what they're talking about when they don't. Because they understand, the world understands that conviction can mean a lot in a conversation. Uh, so that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, anyone else? Albert. Yeah, this whole section, this just reminds me of First um, Corinthians chapter 2 where um, preaching about spiritual wisdom. Like the first few verses says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the of the rulers of the age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And then Paul goes on to write about how uh, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual uh, just kind of going along with the vein that we're talking about the Holy Spirit came and gave Peter and the apostles basically the full knowledge um, that they needed to, to preach the word. Um, and it was interesting because in Acts 2, there's that verse of verse 13, um, they're full of new wine. Um, and in the same passage in Corinthians, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to know them because they're spiritually discerned how these people were unable to understand and so Peter's in this case feeding them that milk that they needed to bring them to that understanding mm-hmm. and we'll see thousands are baptized after his sermon but just, yeah these verses in Second Corinthians parallel so well yeah well first of all spoilers thousands being baptized let's hold on a but, uh, no, you, you bring up very good points, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I would read these passages, and then I'd be shocked. Why can't anyone believe when wonders are happening before them? All these things are happening. You're, talk, you're right about the foolishness of men. They've kind of decided already in their heart um, that there is no God, or there's a different God, or what have you. Um, and are weird. So, um, if there are no other comments, let's continue on to verse 37. Oh, there is. Well, yeah, because it makes you think you're going to try to fool yourself after you hear the word of God and it does convict you. You understand it and you realize that makes sense. At that point in time, you're going to choose to either go with it and change or continue to live the life that you've been living still now with this new understanding of what truth really is. Mm. And if you go to Hebrews 4, I just want to read the rest of the last section of this little, it says, talking about the Word of God, that there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him, to whom we we must give account. So, your eyes have been opened, but who also can see who you clearly are? After you read the truth, and now you understand better than you ever have before, that's a pivotal point in a person's life. You know, that's when you can't claim ignorance. You know, you, and that's what a lot of people try to do. They don't learn the Bible. I can stay here and God can't hold me down. Right. No, 
and I, I like what you said about you know their eyes are open and they're not they're not ignorant anymore, and that definitely applies to this crowd, who very shortly we're going to read about them being pierced to the heart. Um, obviously, they understand a great deal now, and we're going to see what they end up doing with that. Did Avril? Did you? Have yeah, anything? just add one along this James point of yours. Again, in First Corinthians chapter three, verse eighteen, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Mm-hmm. So these people that are relying on their own, own worldly knowledge and their own puffed up minds, we're called to be humble and open our hearts to, to God's word. Yeah, and I think it's not. It's really not just because humble people are easier to get along with, which I think they are, but like you said, then you will become wise because you're not focused on what the world focuses on. You're focused on spiritual things. Thank you. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I, I also think it's important us to remember that the knowledge they did have, mm-hmm. they knew a Messiah was coming. They, no one ever questioned that. Yeah. The, the issue was, is the Messiah they were looking for, the characteristics they were looking for. They are looking for a physical king. And so we talk about evangelism. Part of it is knowing where the individual is and where to start. And in this case, he started with prior knowledge, history they had access to, information they had access to, and, and then applied it in such a way that they clearly could understand it. So again, it just emphasizes the point of the prophets, the Old Testament, and what we've been studying on Wednesday nights and how it all ties them together, mm-hmm. that they can have confidence. And that's why they have this reaction, because now as you're going to get to, is is they, they see all tied together and, and they know their accountability and responsibility now and the fact that they had not. Now, now, why were they rejected? Yes, there was some new information revealed, but the problem was <laughs> they were rejecting Christ himself. Yeah. And, 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 and that's where the individual accountability and responsibility comes in. And that's why they got the reaction. You know, I'm glad that you bring up that point that there really wasn't a dispute that everyone was waiting for a Messiah. Um, and of course, now you can look back and see all the different times the Old Testament spoke about Jesus or Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. And what's interesting to me is that like Jews today was, are still waiting for the Messiah, but all the different passages we would point to that say, "Oh, this is talking about Christ," they go, "No, it's not. It's like the suffering servant in Isaiah." They're like, "Oh, well." It says the servant is Israel, so therefore it's just talking about the kingdom of Israel. I'm like, okay, but the more you pull out of what was previously thought of as pointing to the Christ, I don't even know why they're looking for a Messiah anymore because they're they're losing all the details. Um, I mean, I guess that's an aside, but when you discount all these things as well, that's not pointing to the Messiah. I don't know what they point to anymore. Um, okay. So, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Um, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 